So before we begin, I would just like to state for the record that today is October 21st, 2021, and my name is Ben Bauman, and I'm here in Indianapolis, Indiana, and I'm speaking via phone with Vern Tincher, who's in Terre Haute, Indiana, and we are doing an interview for the Indiana Legislative Oral History Initiative. So uh, just starting off, when and where were you born? Uh, I was born in uh, Lawrence County, Indiana, rural area. I went to school at Huron, Indiana, which was about you know, four miles from where I l- was raised and lived. Mm, okay. And what were your parents' names? Uh, Lonnie and Sylvia Tincher. Okay. And where was your family from before Indiana? Well, uh, according to our history, uh, one of our relatives from North Carolina did the uh, Tensher Tribe book. Uh, we, we came to North Carolina from Scotland and then migrated uh, into Kentucky and then up into Indiana. Hmm, okay. That's interesting. <laughs> yes. Uh, what were your parents' occupations? Uh, my father worked in the uh, stone quarries uh, around Bedford. Uh, my mother uh, was a homemaker. She never worked outside the home. Mm, okay. And did you have any siblings growing up? Oh, yes. Uh, there were eight of us, uh, four boys and four girls. So I had seven siblings. Wow. All right. Yeah, big family. <laughs> yeah, I was four, so uh, I had had an advantage uh, when I, I started school at uh, age five. I was five in June, and I wanted to go to school. Mm-hmm. So my mother told them I was born in 1935 instead of 1936. And since my siblings had brought all those uh, communicable diseases home <laughs> for me before I was <laughs> school age, I, I went 12 years and never missed a day of school. Wow. <laughs> That's impressive, yeah. Uh, how would you describe your childhood overall? Uh, well, we had 40 acres of land, probably two-thirds of that in force, but we raised uh, all most of our food, vegetables, potatoes. Uh, uh, my mother canned, uh, so we, we were uh, kind of self-sufficient uh, yeah. living off the land. Sounds like it. That's cool. And who would you say were the most influential people in your childhood? Uh... Probably uh, some teachers and the principal of our school. Okay. Did you have any understanding about your family's political beliefs as a child? Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> in, in Lawrence County, the uh, predominant political party is Republican. Uh, okay. I don't think that hardly a single office holder is a Democrat, and... Uh, we always figured we were Republicans, and uh, when I ran for office, ran for state representative, and I filed as a Democrat, uh, my brothers told me, 
I didn't know there were any Democrats in the Tetcher family. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I, I kind of broke away from the uh, standard party. Yeah, sounds like it, yeah. Um, how did your uh, parents react to that? Well, my father passed away uh, in 1961 from okay. an accident. Okay. Uh, but uh, oh, uh, they were supportive. Uh, my mother voted for Evan by the first time he ran because I wanted to be superintendent of the Indiana State Police. Right. And when he didn't appoint me superintendent, she didn't vote for him the second time he ran. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And uh, what schools did you attend growing up? I attended uh, Huron High School, H-U-R-O-N High School. Uh, I went to uh, Bryantsville Elementary School for my first two years, and that was where we had uh, two teachers. Uh, One teacher taught one through three, and the other teacher taught four, five, and six. And the only C I ever made in school uh, was the first grade because the first grading period the teacher said she hadn't taught us to write our name, so she gave everyone a C in writing. But (laughs) I was unhappy because I could write my name. Right, okay. (laughs) That's, yeah, that's unfortunate then. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) How would you describe your educational experiences? Well, uh, our classes were small, and uh, one of the reasons for uh, school reorganization was that the small schools didn't offer enough, but I went to Indiana State, and I never had a problem uh, adapting to the higher ed classes. Okay. And did you have any favorite subjects? Uh, I, uh, I have the math aptitude, so uh, math is probably always one of my favorite subjects. Uh, in fact, uh, when I was a, a junior in high school, the principal was the math teacher, and he, he had myself and another girl in Algebra two. We were the only two that wanted to take Algebra two. Oh, okay. Wow. And were you part of any extracurricular activities like sports teams or clubs? Oh, yeah. I was a a basketball player, played all four years, made the varsity my last three years. And I was the fourth highest scorer in Lars County High School during my senior year. Oh, wow. Okay. That's cool. <laughs> so I played a little bit of freshman basketball at Indiana State when I went there. Really? That's that's interesting. Okay. Well, what position did you play? Uh, I was a center since I'm, I was about six three and a half, and when I graduated from high school in uh, 1953, that was tall. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> it, it isn't anymore. It, right. It soon got. Within 10 years, that wasn't tall. Yeah, now that's like a guard position, yeah. <laughs> it is, yes. And it's funny how those things change. It is, really. What views did you have about the state of Indiana or 
about being a Hoosier growing up? Well, uh, I, I think a positive uh, attitude uh, during my our high school when we were juniors and seniors, we always made a trip to Indianapolis to the legislature and spent the day there. So we got a, a little bit of uh, information on how our government is run. Sure. Okay. Now, did you end up going to college after high school? I did. I went uh, one year and uh, dropped out. And my my goal was always to go back mm-hmm. and play college basketball, which I never did do. Okay. And so, so you were, uh, you said you were at Indiana State for a year then? Yes. Okay. Yep, for a year. It, it was Indiana State Teachers College back in those days. Oh, okay. It's since transition to uh, Indiana State uh, College and Indiana State University. Yeah, interesting. What did you study but, there? Pardon? What, what, did, what did you study there? Uh, math and physical education. My goal was to be a basketball coach, which I never did achieve. Oh, okay. So, after you dropped out of college, what did you decide to do then? Uh, I worked in the uh, one of the stone mills for a couple of years. Okay. And when that work, when the stone mill slowed down, I did a, a an apprenticeship as a bricklayer in in East Chicago, Indiana, in Lake County, Indiana. My brother-in-law was a bricklayer up there. Wow, okay. That's interesting. Yes. And what did you do after that? Um, well, I, I, we went to California for uh, about four months and worked out there. Returned to Indiana in March, and the Indiana State Police was advertising for a recruit school. So I applied for that in uh, 1960 and went to recruit school uh, July the 1st of 1960. Interesting. Okay. So you joined the police department. Yeah, the Indiana State Police, and they sent me to uh, Terre Haute. So that's why I'm in Terre Haute, Indiana, because they uh, sent me there. I could have transferred back to uh, Lawrence County in two years if I wanted to, but uh, uh, Eagle County is was more progressive and a good school system, so uh, I stayed in Terre Haute. And so uh, at that point, did your career goal uh, basically become about just building a career in the police department then? Yes. uh, I did my apprenticeship with the Bricklayers Union, and I kept my Bricklayers Union card the entire time. I was with the state police, so after about the first year with the state police, I worked part-time as a Bricklayer. Oh, okay. Yeah. When, if at all, did you get married? Uh, 
got married after my first year at Indiana State University, after I dropped out. Okay. Did you have any children? Yes. Uh, when we went to California, we had uh, one child that was uh, three years old. Then we had another one in 1961 and 64, so I had three children, two boys and a girl. Oh, okay. That's cool. So, My daughter was really the politician of the family. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> she still is. Yeah. Wow. All right. So when did you start becoming seriously involved in politics? Well, uh, actually, uh, I never, during my first dozen years with the state police, I never voted in a primary because I didn't want to declare my politics. Okay. You, you, when you go on the state police, you have to declare your politics either as a Republican or Democrat. Interesting. And they don't keep you, they don't, uh, say you have to stay that party. But uh, I was a Republican, listed as a Republican with the Indiana State Police. Yeah. Then Spiegel County was primarily Democratic. Uh, I got acquainted with that style of politics primarily. Sure. And so when did you decide to run for the Indiana General Assembly? Well, in uh, 1981, I, I had, 1981 I completed my 20 years was eligible for retirement. But the legislature had redrawn the districts and uh, the 46th district had uh, uh, one, all of Olin County and parts of six other counties. So it was very rural and very spread out. And the incumbent uh, representative in District 46 was going to run for prosecutor. So I decided I would run for state representative since I had enough years to retire. Right, okay. That makes sense. Which... Yeah, but there was one one problem. The Indiana State Police and the State Police Act has a requirement that the only politics allowed for Indiana State Police officers was voting. That you couldn't run, for, you know, there's nothing that allowed you to run for office. Oh, okay. So seven of us with the state police serving on the state police that wanted to run for office, uh, the others six wanted to run for sheriff and I wanted to run for state representative. We filed a lawsuit against the state of Indiana and the state police asking for an injunction so they couldn't fire us so we could run for office. And what happened? Well, we were going to do it in Hendricks County. We had an attorney representing us and the uh, judge in Hendricks County was pro-state police, but he didn't want us. He didn't want that lawsuit in his court. So one of our uh, fellow officers uh, was from uh, Noble County. So we went up to Albion in uh, January and filed the lawsuit, and it was cold. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Albion is way up north yeah. in Michigan. 
Interesting. All right. So when you were starting to get involved with state politics and you decided to run, what exactly shaped your political outlook? Well, uh, I was more familiar with the Democrat Party and I had already laid the groundwork to run as a Democrat. Um, our prosecutor in Beagle County was a Republican and he called me one day at the post and wanted me to stop by his office. I did and there was also the uh, Republican uh, judge, the Republican county chairman and maybe another one or two other people and they want me to run for sheriff on the Republican ticket. Okay. I, I told them that I already made a commitment to run for state representative as a Democrat, so <laughs> I declined their offer. What made you switch from Republican to Democrat? Well, because uh, Vigo County and Sullivan County were predominantly Democrat, and uh, I, I knew more people on the Democrat side okay. than I did on the other side. Sure. So I guess you just felt more comfortable on that side then. Yes. Were there any key issues or legislation that you wanted to champion or fight against when you started running for the General Assembly? Yeah, one thing I wanted to change was the uh, fact that uh, city police and county police could run for office political office and not have to separate from the department, but state police couldn't. So I wanted to change that portion of the law so that state police officers could also run for a political office. Yeah. And and I, my first session there, I joined with uh, Representative Brad Fox, who was from, uh, Northern Indiana, a Republican, and in, in the first few years when uh, the Democrats were really in the minority in the House, if you wanted to get a bill to move, you almost needed a Republican author, first author on that bill. So I was able to get, we were able to get the law changed so that state policemen could run for office, but once you filed for office, you had to take an unpaid leave of absence as long as you were a candidate. Right, okay. Did you have any national, state, or local political heroes that you kind of looked up to when you were getting involved in politics? Well, uh, sort of. The, the, the outgoing state representative in District 46 was kind of a a mentor to me and uh, um, and several of the uh, Democrat county chairs uh, really gave me a lot of support so that helped yeah that's good and what did your campaign emphasize then well it emphasized uh, my career as a state police officer and the fact that uh, of the integrity and uh, uh, repu- 
to serve my constituents and serve them well. Okay. Did you have a campaign strategy? Well, uh, not really. We did uh, in 1982. I had uh, five weeks of vacation. So I calculated back from election day and took my five weeks starting in September so that I could do door to door and get out and, and meet uh, my constituents as much as possible. Sure. That makes sense. Do you remember yeah. Do you remember who your main opponent was? Uh, it was a uh, school teacher from Martinsville, Indiana, who was uh, originally from Owen County. Uh, as I say, the, the district had all of Owen County and had parts of six others, which was Morgan, uh, Green, Clay, Vigo, and Sullivan County. Okay. So it, it was really stretched out, and my service with, and reputation with the Indiana State Police, uh, I think, gave me a, a real advantage. Yeah, yeah. We also had one township in Monroe County, so that it, it was it was designed by a, an attorney working for the uh, House uh, Republican Caucus, and he designed it for himself, but he lost in the primary. Okay. It was Jim Brighton that I ran against. His brother also happened to be the Democrat mayor in uh, Terre Haute. But Jim was a Republican. Interesting, okay. What did you think of the election process? Well, it was it was interesting. Uh, I enjoyed meeting people, uh, and uh, I, I think my time with the state police is also one thing that they knew who I was by the fact that I, I was able to spend nearly 22 years with the state police. Okay. So, thinking about your political career, and since you served so long in the General Assembly, did your campaigns and strategies sort of change over time during your political career? Oh, it did. Uh, back about... Uh, 
was probably a small issue that was added to the bill, and they would uh, say that this is what burnt tincture stands for. Okay. And maybe it's not necessarily something I was for, but it's part of the bill, and you accept the bill, have to accept the bill as it is. Mm -hmm. But they ran negative campaigns, which we hadn't done, which but we had to start doing also. Okay, yeah, so it just became, became like this battle. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Wow. So when you first got elected and you won your election, how did you feel that day you finally found out that you were going to go to the General Assembly? Well, it was uh, kind of exciting. Uh, during that uh, 1982 campaign uh, we had uh, Stan Jones and Marilyn Schultz part of the Democrat both Democrat representatives that had taken issue with the fiscal situation in Indiana they were predicting that Indiana was facing a fiscal deficit and after the election uh, I retired November the 30th. On December the 3rd, we had a special session and raised taxes by about $600 million to offset okay. that deficit we were facing. So went from the state police one week and a less later the next week. Okay. Yeah. What were you thinking when you walked into the state house for your first day in office? Well, it, it, it it's kind of overwhelming uh, to realize you're one of a hundred that's and plus the fifty in the Senate that are going to help shape the uh, position of the state of Indiana. It's it's uh, as I say, it's a a kind of a surprise and overwhelming. Yeah. What did you expect of the legislative process, and was it more or less complicated than you expected? It is a bit. Uh, the biggest fear you have when you start your first few sessions is you do not, you're, you're cautious that you don't go up to the microphone and make a fool of yourself. You don't want to embarrass yourself in front of all of your other 99 colleagues. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I can imagine there'd be a, a little bit of pressure uh, when you first get started to, uh, to try to fit in and get comfortable. It is. It, it takes, uh, takes some uh, adjustment to fit in. So you mentioned earlier that there was someone that kind of served as a political mentor for you. Um, was it by talking to other legislators that helped you kind of figure out the ins and outs of state politics? Yeah, we had uh, one uh, representative that had been there for probably at least a dozen years before I started. and He was great friends with the Speaker of the House, J. Roberts Daly. And uh, he gave me, I sat next to him on the House floor my first uh, four years, and uh, he always would give me tidbits of advice. And in fact, J. Roberts Daly graduated from 
I lived was part of the, the uh, daily farm. So uh, I had a little bit of connection with uh, J. Roberts Daily Speaker of the House, who happened to be from Muncie, Indiana. Okay. Yeah. How did you know the needs and wants of your constituents? Well, we would do uh, surveys uh, on on the issues, and back in those days, gee, uh, you had to have everything typed and, and mailed out, so it, it was a bit cumbersome, but uh, I, I was probably uh, a fiscal conservative, and uh, a little more moderate on social issues. Uh, there wasn't a great deal of philosophical difference between the Democrat legislators and the Republican legislators. Okay. We all were fairly close in uh, in attitudes about things. Oh, okay. Sure. Do you remember the first bill that you sponsored? the regular interactions like between members of the General Assembly? Oh, we, we argue a lot on the House floor. Uh, you, you can, if you have a difference of opinion on a bill with another legislator, Republican or Democrat, you can't afford to uh, develop hard feelings because on one of the next few bills, you may be together on that bill. Right. Or, or supporting the same bill. So, uh, really, uh, we would uh, do our business on the House floor, and then in the evening time, we'd go to the reception, and we'd all we'd sit down and eat with our Republican colleagues. So we were all friends, really. Yeah, okay. What differences, if any, did you notice between the House and Senate? Well, the, the Senate likes to consider themselves the uh, upper chamber, and uh, you should listen to their wisdom and uh, advice, <laughs> but uh, I, I think the House members are uh, just as uh, smart and well-informed as the, our Senate colleagues. And, uh, right. It's funny because... Uh after interviewing several people now, I always hear uh, how former House and Senate members both kind of talk down about the other side. <laughs> <laughs> well, we always say that uh, the, the Senate was uh, rather uh, stiff and formal. Yeah. The House uh, sessions had more fun than yes. the, uh, in the Senate. But uh, we always... You know, we worked together. Uh, I was I was on Ways and Means for 16 years and got acquainted with uh, Senator Larry Borsch and Senator Senator Morris Mills, who were on the uh, uh, Republican uh, fiscal part of it. And then l- later, uh, after been there several years, uh, 
Okay, sure. I heard from multiple House members, and I, I also heard kind of some former Senate members talking about this as well, but uh, did you experience people sort of pulling pranks on each other in the House? Oh, yes. The House <laughs> liked to pull pranks. Probably uh, one of the uh, first pranksters we had uh, in the House was when John Gregg was elected in 1986. Okay. John liked to pull pranks until he became Speaker of the House, and then he didn't think those pranks were funny any Okay, longer. okay. <laughs> <laughs> so what type of pranks would people pull? Well, uh, John always liked to sit in seat 100 in the back, and he loved to shoot rubber bands up towards the front. <laughs> and then uh, some of them would like to get a clothespin and pin it on the back of your jacket, your suit jacket. And I told one state representative who was bad about that, then they would put little things on there so it would be more noticeable. I said, if I ever catch you pinning one uh, close pin on my jacket, I'm going to knock you on your butt. <laughs> so I think that may had him, induced him to leave me alone. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's almost kind of like a, like a high school or something like that, yeah. It, yeah, it was. It was juvenile Yeah. Wow. Given the rivalry between the House and Senate, did members of the House ever try to pull pranks on people in the Senate? Not usually. Uh, as I say, they were a bit stiffer and didn't uh, get involved in those things. So I think the House members didn't... Uh, pool with the senators if they were visiting the house floor. Okay, sure. <laughs> uh, how did you get support for various legislation that you worked on? Well, normally uh, when we were in the minority the uh, first six years, uh, we would always find a good Republican to serve as author of our bill and, and work with them. Uh, when, uh, when we would get down to the deadline for passing House bills over to the Senate, we might have 120 bills on the calendar. The Speaker would, would call all the Republican bills first. He may call 100 Republican bills and then the last few hours, all we have is 20 Democrat bills. And you, you had to talk to him in advance if you wanted your bill to be called down Okay. near the deadline. So with that in mind, how was legislative business conducted outside of formal votes and committee meetings? Oh, uh, as I say, I, I think... Uh, most of the House members got along well, and uh, you could discuss uh, things. Uh, we, we stayed in an apartment uh, about two blocks from the uh, State House, and uh, when we were doing the time bill, the senator carrying that bill for the governor, we agreed that when we get together 
on Sunday night, we'd never talk about the time bill. Okay. So we kind of get respected if someone less later had a particular uh, sticky issue, we would uh, not talk about those things, not embarrass each other. Sure. When it came to voting on legislation, did you have a pretty good idea of how your colleagues would vote on a bill before actually voting? Yeah, normally if it was your bill, you would uh, survey the uh, the uh, legislators to see if they were supporting your bill. Uh, some bills, uh, the, the caucus expects you to vote a certain way. Uh, when it probably uh, the first few years of Evan Bayes administration, we had a bill that uh, uh, combined all of the social services, and uh, the Democrats were working sure working to make sure they had enough votes to pass it. Myself and, and another representative that served on Ways and Means voted no. And then later we were called into the speaker's office saying, you know, you two serve on ways and means and uh, others voted for that bill that didn't want to. So, you know, you need to support the caucus. So some things you, the caucus expected you to toe the line and and vote for bills, even though it wasn't really very popular. Yeah. And so did you ever... Uh, refuse of, of what party leadership wanted you to do? Occasionally, if it was something I felt strongly about, uh, uh, the Family and Social Services bill was one that they, they never asked me if I was going to vote yes or vote no. Yeah. Uh, if, if, they, if a uh, legislator or a lobbyist asked how I was going to vote on a bill, if I was going to vote yes, I would tell them. If I was going to vote no, I would tell them because your word is kind of your bond there. Mm -hmm. So you don't try to deceive someone by giving them the wrong response. That makes sense. But overall, then, you would say that party leadership was pretty influential then on dictating legislation? Yeah, probably only about... Uh, 10% of the bills uh, were really controversial and something that the caucus expected you to toe the line on. The rest of the time you were a free agent and uh, free to vote uh, your feelings, true feelings on on a bill. Yeah, yeah. How often would you say you worked with Republicans to get legislation done? Oh, often. Uh, I, I was on Ways and Means in the last uh, six years. I was committee chair, so uh, you would uh, work with with your colleagues to get uh, a bill moving. Did you find it harder to work with Republicans over time when things started to get a little bit more politically toxic in the General Assembly? Yeah, um, it, it it became uh, more controversial the last few years, uh, but 
now I've, I'm happy that I'm not there because it would be difficult, really stuck in a uh, super minority. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure that makes it more difficult. So. Oh, it does. How did your legislative service affect your family life? Uh, not really. My wife, Linda, worked with me. We campaigned together. Um, she would, uh, we'd get an apartment, uh, and uh, she would uh, come down to the state house later in the day and visit with the other wives. They would go shopping, so... Uh, the politics really controls your lifestyle because you have so many commitments to make. Yeah. That makes sense. Yep. What were the most controversial legislative issues during your time in the Assembly? Well, <laughs> we had a, uh, a, a few of them. Uh, the lottery and uh, gaming was a real uh, major issue controversial I didn't really support the uh, gaming okay um, but and uh, when when we and that's really what caused uh, the lottery was the issue that uh, caused the defeat of Speaker of the House, Jay Roberts Daly, in, uh, in uh, 1988. He was against the lottery, and most, most of the Hoosier citizens supported the lottery because Illinois had the lottery and Ohio had the lottery. If you wanted to buy a lottery ticket, you couldn't do it by mail, so you had to either go to Illinois or go to Ohio and buy a lottery ticket. Yeah. Lottery, I didn't, I didn't mind supporting because that's what uh, the Hoosiers wanted. But uh, the casino gaming, uh, uh, I just never really supported it. Yeah. What piece of legislation sort of took the most time that you had to work on? <laughs> well, uh, I think the. Uh, Daylight savings time okay. <laughs> took a, a, a lot of uh, debate. Uh, in fact, uh, when we finally voted on daylight savings time, uh, normally the vote in the House is quick. They turn the machine on, uh, vote green if you're in favor, red if you're opposed. Uh, they turned the machine on, everyone voted, and it was 50 green and 50 red. They, the speaker left the uh, machine on for 30 minutes. And finally, a Republican freshman switched from no to yes, and we had daylight savings time. <laughs> wow. So, and it, he, he didn't win the next election either. Okay, wow. <laughs> what was the biggest hurdle you had to overcome during your time in office? Well, uh, I was in a 
district that was about 47% Democrat. Uh, in 1994, uh, one of our uh, state senators termed it as the worst year for Democrats since World War II, and I ended up losing that election by 125 votes. Wow. But I came back in 1996 and reclaimed my seat. Okay. So, consequently, and uh, later in 19, in 2002, I lost uh, by a couple of hundred votes. My opponent put uh, sixty-five thousand dollars of his own money in the uh, campaign in October, which we and we have a requirement in the election law that if you in October, thirty days before the election. If you get any contribution of $1,000 or more, you have to file a written report within 24 hours. Okay. He never filed a single report that he was pouring money into his campaign. So I lost in 2002, and I regained my seat back in 2004. Wow, so you, you made multiple comebacks then, did you? Yes, I, I lost twice and came back each time. And, uh, <laughs> in, in 2010, on New Year's Day, uh, I told my wife, Linda, that we need to have a talk. Do we really want to run again? <laughs> and I, that, I'd already had served 24 years. And we agreed that we would not run for re-election in 2010. Yeah. And about two weeks later, she said, have you changed your mind? And no, I didn't. Uh, so we held off making an announcement because the caucus wanted us to wait till we found a candidate. Yeah. I had a news conference to announce my election plans for 2010, and we started in Vigo County with the uh, TV and newspaper present. And I said, I want to announce my election plans for 2010. And it is, I'm not running again. Yeah. So that was kind of a surprise. We, we kept it a real secret uh, that we weren't going to run for re-election in 2010. Sure. Yeah, that's interesting. So moving towards some more specific questions on uh, some things I just saw in newspaper articles um, about your service and, and kind of things that were going on at the time that you served. Um do you remember anything about a bill that uh, was supposed to provide financial relief to those wrongly convicted of crimes? Yes, I do. Uh, we had a uh, young man here, in, he was in from West Terre Haute. He was convicted of murder, and I knew the detective, that uh, state police detective that had uh, investigated the case. But he'd served about 10 years, and they, they found the uh, uh, perpetrator that committed the crime. Uh, but he had confessed and everything, so it was kind of his own fault. But, uh, you know, since he was wrongly convicted and served time for a crime he didn't commit, I felt we should uh, compensate him for his time. But we never could get that bill to move. Mm, okay. Other states have done similar legislation.
Association in reimbursing wrongly convicted uh, people. Yeah, interesting. Okay. I also saw that during your service, it seemed like there were debates going on about gay marriage. Do you remember any any of those debates or what was happening at the time? Not too much. Uh, I I did a a couple of uh, bills on uh, illegal immigrants working. And uh, oddly enough, the the two major uh, proponents of allowing the illegal immigrants in Indiana was the Indiana State Chamber of Commerce and the Catholic Church. Mm, Okay. For one thing, uh, for the... uh, Chamber of Commerce, it was cheap labor. And for the uh, Catholic Church, most of the uh, Hispanics were Catholic, so uh, they they supported uh, uh, those uh, folks. Interesting, okay. Um, also, I was just thinking, uh, you know, given your, given the fact that you were a police officer, were there do you remember any debates about gun control during your service? Not a, a great deal. Okay. Uh, I never had a problem with uh, law-abiding folks uh, mm-hmm. carrying a handgun. I, I think there's a ample reason to require licensing for people to carry a concealed handgun. Right. You, you eliminate those people that... Uh, have mental problems or committed a crime before, so you weed those people out from having, uh, being able to carry a concealed uh, weapon. Sure, okay. How would you summarize your time overall as a state legislator? Well, I, I think I was, I pride myself on always being uh, well-informed on the issue, issues, uh, I, I read the bills and uh, took time to know what was going on. Uh, I, I worked with several good state senators, both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, uh, Bob Hellman was uh, a state senator from Vigo County that was always very knowledgeable and wanted to work on the issues. I, I worked with uh, Senator Ed Pease, and I shared the, a lot of territory with him. Uh, we would go to... Uh, uh, a uh, Saturday morning uh, legislative session uh, and people would say if we didn't know who the Democrat was and who the Republican was we couldn't tell you apart okay so, uh, he, he was always when uh, Bob Orr was governor I called him Governor Orr and didn't uh, uh, insult him and when Evan Bayh was governor uh, Senator Pease uh, would call him Governor uh, By, and so you know, we always we always uh, pride ourselves in talking the issues. Yeah. Okay. What is your favorite story from your time as a legislator? Oh, gee, there's there's so uh, many of them. Uh, yeah. Okay. It's it's. <laughs> difficult to say. I, uh, uh, we had a uh, uh, Armiga meeting uh, last week. Uh, the Association of Retired Members of the Indiana General Assembly. Sure. Yeah. Okay. 
and we were at the state house and uh, we saw a lot of Republican friends. Uh, uh, Bill Friend, uh, uh, Senator Jackman, uh, you know, and it, it was a kind of a reunion of old friends, really. Yeah, yeah, that's fun. Yeah, I know there's a yeah a fairly large, I guess, alumni group and everything, and I've yes. talked with a fair amount of people who are a part of that. So yeah, um, yeah, we're, we're kind of a senior citizens group now. Yeah, <laughs> so long, and you know, uh, Pat Bauer. Uh, I served on Ways and Means with Pat Bauer for for sixteen years, and. Uh, he was elected when he was 20 years old and uh, yeah. spent 50 years yeah. in the legislature. Yeah. Yeah, I, I interviewed uh, Pat Bauer. Yeah, that was interesting. <laughs> he was a glutton for punishment. Yeah. <laughs> what lessons, if any, did you learn from your experience in the General Assembly? Well, you learned that uh, you... you have to be considerate of everyone. Uh, okay. Yeah, not everyone shares the same views, uh, and oftentimes uh, you would have to explain why you voted yes or no on a particular issue. Uh, and I, I think uh, being patient with your constituents is one thing that's an acquired skill and, and necessary, really. Okay, sure. Do you have any regrets as a legislator? No, it, it was a uh, great experience. Uh, we helped so many people uh, trying to, uh, for the average citizen, trying to deal with uh, state government. It's kind of a nightmare. We were able to uh, uh, contact the state agency and solve problems. Uh, people would get a letter from the Bureau of Motor Vehicles saying, your license, your driver's license is suspended because you had an accident uh, four years ago and you didn't file the uh, financial responsibility form. So you could help them uh, uh, regain their driver's license and in most cases waive the $125 filing fee. Interesting, okay. So we helped a, we helped a lot of people and that was one of the rewarding things of being a uh, state representative. Yeah, I bet. What advice would you give to future legislators or even current legislators? Well, uh, you have to realize uh, that you're representing about 66,000 people in your district. And there's about... Uh, six million six hundred thousand citizens so what actions you take affects a lot of people uh, some uh, positive some adverse so you have to really look at what legislation legislation is doing to uh, our state and uh, communities in particular yeah what in your opinion is the most important work of the indiana general assembly well, uh, dealing with all of the uh, fiscal issues, uh, taxes, fees, uh, 
of certain people, uh, you have to consider everyone and every uh, community when you're voting on legislation. You just can't do what is in your special interest. Look, look at how it affects everyone. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. What would you say the public does not know about the Indiana General Assembly and how it operates? Well, uh, in my day, I think uh, uh, the average citizen thought Republicans and Democrats were always uh, at each other's throat and arguing all the time. But in reality, uh, we're a we're a large fraternity that uh, got along because we were doing what was in the best interest of the state of Indiana and the people in the state of Indiana. Okay. Did that change over time when you into into the 2000s and stuff when you served? Yeah, I, I think it uh, changed somewhat. Uh, people wanted to deal with their self-interest and uh, party issues more than what was good for overall the state of Indiana and our citizens. Yeah. How common was lobbying in the General Assembly, and and how influential was it? Well, uh, it it was sometimes influential. It it didn't change your mind very often, but... uh, a, a good lobbyist, uh, you could trust what he told you, and he, he lobbyists would give you a lot of information that you would have to dig up otherwise. And back the days before a computer, it wasn't easy to look up things. Yeah. So a lobbyist was really helpful, and a lobbyist had to be honest and truthful with you because if he lost. If he wasn't, he lost credibility and you wouldn't deal with him anymore. Sure, sure. That makes sense. Were you ever concerned about uh, money having influence in politics at all, or was that not really a problem that you saw? Oh, I... Uh, when politics changed uh, in the 2010 election, uh, a lot of it was because uh, of the influx of... Uh, money through uh, uh, the governor's office. Uh, it switched from uh, uh, the raising your own money. I never spent more than $250,000 in a campaign. Okay. And I was in a uh, uh, district that was uh, contestable. But, gee, now... Uh, the, the year after I was out, uh, both candidates for my seat spent about $450,000 each. Wow. So money money has a lot of influence in the uh, campaigns nowadays. And, and of course, we, we just have new maps. Uh, the Democrats drew the redistricting of the uh, uh, legislative seats and the congressional seats in uh, 1991 and 2001, uh, Indiana is basically a Republican state because when we drew the maps in 2001, we could only draw 43 Democrat seats. Mm -hmm. 
seats. Indiana's not a 79-21 state. Uh, here in Vigo County, we used to have Vigo County divided into uh, five different, different house seats. Now you have two and all the Democrats are in one and the Republicans in another. So uh, the gerrymandering has an effect on how things go. Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. How has the state of Indiana changed over the course of your lifetime? Well, uh, Indiana used to be predominantly rural, and, and now um, the uh, cities and towns uh, control things. Uh, I think the farmers uh, feel that they're really in the minority, but uh, Indiana is uh, an industrialized state. Uh, we have a lot of factories, and, and agriculture is not the uh, primary uh, industry anymore. Last couple questions. What okay. enduring qualities do Hoosiers still have or hold dear? Repeat the question again. Uh, what enduring qualities do Hoosiers still have or hold dear? Well, I think uh, they look at uh, honesty and straightforwardness as an asset that most Hoosiers have. You care about people. You do what's, what you can to help others. And uh, you consider everyone when you take action. Yeah. What do you want the people of Indiana to know about their role when it comes to the function of the General Assembly? Well, uh, you, you need to be aware of the issues and uh, don't be hesitant to... Uh, let your uh, legislator know your opinion on things. It's easy to do with the email and uh, you can tell them what you're for or against and, and you pay attention to those things. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's all the questions I have for you. Is there anything that I didn't ask about that you wanted to mention or... Now, you, you never mentioned our 50-50 ties in the house. Oh, okay, that's right. Yeah, let's... We had two of them. Yeah, tell me about and those. <laughs> the first one was from the 1988 election. Uh, our state constitution was formed in 1851 with a hundred house seats and since that time, we had never had a 50-50 tie. Yeah, okay. But we did in 1988. And, and then uh, they probably didn't think it happened again, but it happened again in uh, the 1996 election. Yeah. Uh, Evan Bayh was the Secretary of State in 1988 and... After 
Sure. But uh, on we meet the third Tuesday of the month, and in 1988 we met the third Tuesday, and we couldn't agree on how to handle it. Um, on Wednesday night, about 8 p.m., Evan Bai called uh, the session to order and told us that if you don't agree on how to handle this issue and form a new house governing system, you're going to be having your Thanksgiving dinner on the house floor. <laughs> so we went up and discussed things and uh, agreed on following what the state of Washington had done a few years earlier, have alternate a Republican and a Democrat speaker, uh, alternate uh, committee chairman, uh, and that's what we did for that year. Uh, and in 1996, the uh, Republicans had the majority, uh, 95, in 1995, and they they passed a bill saying that if we have another 50-50 tie in the House, the party that controls, that wins the governor's office or has a governor's office uh, shall appoint the Speaker of the House. Well, Frank O'Bannon was running against, uh, I think it was Steve Goldsmith, and they, the Republicans didn't see much of a chance for uh, Frank O'Bannon winning. <laughs> so when Frank O'Bannon won the election in 1996, John Gregg was uh, elected Speaker of the House by 50 members. Wow. So we, we have a plaque on each side of the House chambers with all the members' names uh, that served in the 50-50 sessions. Yeah. What was the working atmosphere like in a 50-50 session versus a a normal session? (laughs) Well, uh, in uh, 1989 and 90, we passed a lot of bills that we sent over to the Senate because a tie vote in committee would send the bill to the uh, House floor. And we had even number of uh, members in each committee. So we did a lot of legislation that probably wasn't necessary to move. In uh, 1996, uh, the Republicans... uh, were concerned uh, about moving the uh, budget, and we had two Republicans that voted with the Democrats to uh, pass uh, a budget in uh, 1997. So, but things worked out, and we we survived the uh, ties. And Did you think it was better or worse to have a 50-50 session versus a, a party in the majority? It, I think it was good. It was a new experience, and uh, I think we all learned something from it. That, yeah. Uh, you know, we have to get along if we're going to uh, uh, move legislation. That was the important thing. Yeah, sure. Well, is there anything else that uh, you want to <laughs> mention or that you thought of? or? No, I think you've covered uh, a lot of things. So. All right. 
Well, I appreciate you taking the time to be a part of this project. Well, thanks, Ben. I appreciate your uh, patience in getting this set up. I know it's a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, no problem. Absolutely. Thank you. So. Okay. All right. Talk to Take you later. Care. Bye-bye. Uh, bye.